Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is, readers and listeners, this is the PRC show, but it's actually reading Parting the Waters, episode 012, episode 12 of Reading Parting the Waters. And I got my friend Gabe here today, and we are doing chapter 14, Christmas in Albany. But I want to do um, give us a little reminder of where we left off last. We were in Macomb, Mississippi with Bob Moses, if you remember, and the SNCC activist. There was some violence down there. The first, I think it was the first uh, victim of like murder in these books. Uh, we were trying to organize people to vote. Not me and Gabe, obviously, but uh, the, in the story. Um, and we had some uh, people getting arrested. It was both encouraging and discouraging. And then in this chapter, uh, I don't think Martin Luther King was in the last chapter at all, really. He doesn't. He didn't go down to Macomb, but in this one he does appear, and there's more mass arrests. So, Gabe, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. So, let's get into SNCC. So, the SNCC activists. Remember, these are the youth: Charles Sherrod and Cordell Region. Is that how you say his name? They are in Macomb, but they leave after they see a lot of their friends going to jail in Macomb, and they head be- they head to Albany, Georgia, and they are feeling kind of good. They don't have any money. The organization's kind of not super strong, but they're full branch rights. They're full of like freedom struggle zeal. They meet up with, oh God, this gets confusing here. They meet up with the King family, not to be confused with Martin Luther King and his dad, but another King family. And this King family in Albany, Georgia, not Albany, New York. Um, they want to repeat, um, let me just pause. They want to repeat like what was going on in Mississippi with registering people to vote and kind of challenging segregation. The father King was a real estate broker and he was like the, it was a builder, I guess he had seven kids. One who branch kind of says went legally insane after applying for admission to the uh, university of Mississippi. Um, and maybe he was insane or maybe it was like that experience that like, you know, pushed him over the limit. Uh, Two of King's other sons were a lawyer named C.B. King and a builder and a real estate broker, Slater King. So anyways, Sherrod and Region began their work by introducing themselves to local pastors and spreading the word of their mission. And they received some resistance from the local black leaders. Many of them feared reprisal from, you know, the white community. uh, But, you know, the interest from the younger generation really... Uh, negates this fear so they set up and start holding um, meetings and playing basketball playing basketball that's right getting to know the youth there's this leader in the end the local NAACP uh, uh, the branch writes Tom Chapman he's the head of the youth council and he's worried about SNCC he says, uh, Branch says, he's worried that, that SNCC is going to seduce these local youth into suicidal demonstrations. And there's reason for that. I mean, we recently just had somebody get killed for trying to register to vote in the last chapter. Nevertheless, the youth are enthused and want to test um, white uh, waiting room segregation in the Trailways bus station. There's this new ICC ruling. Remember, the ICC is the Interstate Commerce Commission. I mean, we all know that, right? Uh, there's a de- desegregation rule, so the, the bus stations should be desegregated. And so Chapman, as a local NAACP figure, he wants to support the youth. And in theory, he's like into this. But then he's worried that if he asks the approval of the NAACP, that they're going to refuse. Um, and they're also going to say, you know, oh, you're just bending to the SN, the SNCC line. Um, but then if you went ahead... And did this without talking to the NAACP, he would be insubordinate and invite censure. So what he ends up doing is he works out a secret agreement with youth um, that, okay, we'll do this, but let's avoid arrest. I thought this was just interesting because why isn't everybody on the same page? Why is there this tension of the NAACP? They seem to be the least into activism in this whole book so far. That's all legal strategy for them. Um What's your thoughts on this? Well, to be fair to the NAACP, by the end of this episode, it's a sort of a three-cornered organizational tension. But ju- but just on the NAACP, I think that this youth leader is in a really difficult position because I think the people who have created a role for him, the organization he's part of, that's very well established, 
that has been able to have some resources and have a respectful relationship with the church and with politics is afraid of this challenge, both because it's uh, possibly could cause disaster and conflict or simply could drain the resources of of the uh, NAACP when they don't have all the money that they need. They end up getting dragged into lawsuits and struggles and having to support things that they didn't initiate. There's this fear that maybe the SNCC people in particular are communists or some kind of radicals who are going to be bad for the community or or bring down the oppressive weight of the state on them in some way. And then balanced against that is this fear that there's going to be a kind of shedding of support from the NAACP to this other organization, that they'll sort of lose out Mm, in in the marketplace of ideas and an activist organizations, and that so he's having to navigate in between all of these fears and, and tensions, and this is sort of what he works out. It's not the worst solution in the world, given if if you are an NAACP an AACP person and you want to maintain that, uh, I suppose. Well, it just goes against, I think, modern conventional wisdom of the NAACP is the leader for civil rights, and I'm talking about. Uh, conventional in the year 2040. That's what year we're in. But, you know, and at this point, this NAACP is 50 years old. They're over 50 years old, where SNCC is, what, 13 months old? It's uh, the end of, uh, it's the end of 20, or 1961. So when do they start? Like 1960? So uh, 18 months old? Anyway, so we go to, we got to talk about this guy, Lori, Lori, he's a guy, Pritchard. Uh, he's the police commissioner of Albany. Real SOB. Or maybe he's not. Maybe he's humane. We'll, we'll, we'll let you decide. So the youth go to the bus station. Word leaks out. Oh, by the way, this chapter has a lot of word leaking out. They Branch mentioned this a lot, where the police and the white power structure find out about things before, and they're anticipating things, where in other cases they didn't really know. Well, maybe, I don't know think about that so mayor kelly and albany city commissioner are aware of this like demonstration by the youth pritchard was a studious far-sighted police officer notwithstanding his hulking ex-football player's frame and ever-present cigar um in anticipation of such a crisis he had studied the performance of alabama authorities during the freedom rides concluding that their chief error had been to permit violence remember bull connor allowed the clan in um, bags to beat on <laughs> I'll have to edit that out to beat on the Freedom Riders when they went to the trailway station uh, initially for 15 minutes so he's like that was a mistake because that drew publicity and forced federal intervention he lectured his officers on how to enforce their race laws without nightsticks or guns um, to the city commission Pritchard announced that he had instructed his men to make no arrest under the segregation laws themselves this is really important um which were vulnerable to legal attacks. Uh, so he doesn't want it to have segregation become under the, the, the law. Like, so he's always arresting people we'll see under like public, what is it? Um, causing a disturbance. Causing a disturbance and things like that. He said he put the entire Al- uh, Albany police force uh, status on alert um, and all vacation time was canceled. He's a sophisticated dude, way different than Bull Connor. Uh, so students head down. We're told to leave. They go to this, the bus station. There's no incident. It was decided that you know, okay, we we go back, we group, but listen, we have to get, we have to um, get arrested. We have to plan a strategy. If you watch the Eyes on the Prize documentary that was filmed in the 1980s, so this is about 20 to 25 years later, um, a lot of these villains are not in the documentary but Pritchard is and he comes across as matter of fact trying to be neutral expressing sympathy for desegregation but saying I my job was to he's leaning heavily on the like I was trying to be humane and be nice and I didn't want any of that violence but I was just there to uphold the law well he's doing a little whitewashing of history but he is I think that's really uh Im- but it's, it's it's interesting right. that he's in this documentary. You, you, go ahead. Well, right, no, and that, and that's interesting. It shows he's um, self aware and uh, engaged in some smart uh, political revision, right? Mm-hmm. Because we we have contemporary quotes 
in in the branch text of him using racial epithets oh yeah and planning carefully with uh, segregationist politicians in albany to not only maintain peace and order but actually to use different laws to keep segregation in effect in place but he was less violent and seemed to have less zeal for beatings and things like that but almost for, from a, maybe personally, but just like, but like as we just mentioned, from tactical I'm, standpoint, I'm not doubting that. But the the idea that he is was somehow neutral in the 1960s is specious. Of course, Charles Sherrod says, "Oh my God, my volume." It's not specious. Right. It's it's dishonest. Dishonest. Charles Sherrod, one of my favorite characters. He's awesome in the Eyes on the Prize documentary. He comes across as like proud and uh, just still full of energy and whatnot. He says some people say uh, Pritchard was nonviolent. How could a man be nonviolent who observed people? being beaten with billy clubs one young lady was dragged up the steps on the courthouse after being arrested by her hair another man dragged into the courthouse by his groin um so yeah anyways let's get to the albany movement background and i want people to be thinking about mont i want you guys to be thinking i'll tell you what you should think <laughs> what i was thinking about is montgomery i keep thinking about the montgomery bus boycott while i'm reading this chapter and we'll touch upon that at the end if gabe will let me will you let me i will okay thank you <laughs> your name's on the podcast okay so uh a little background is that cb king the attorney he's one of the black aristocrats i guess he's working on a criminal case where a local sheriff this is like right before this. A local sheriff, white guy, shoots a black farmer, Charlie Ware, three times. This guy miraculously survives. And he's shot for talking or looking at a white woman at a, a, a summer party, right? This sparks indignation and action. And it kind of, it basically... We just linger for just for a sure. second on, on that piece of violence. The description of what happens is is harrowing. And it really reminds me... Uh, obviously, this is not a, a a contemporary news and analysis podcast, but it's standard playbook mm -hmm. for a police officer who has carried out an act of violence, maybe a shooting, to explain themselves as being uh, threatened. Of course, in this context, the police officer is shooting someone who is, I think, already uh, restrained. Yep. And and but saying over the radio, this person racial yeah. ep racial epithet insert here is about to pick up a knife to attack me. I have to shoot him. Oh, this uh, again. insert racial epithet is attacking me again. And I'm going to have to shoot him, him again. Yeah. Exactly. He's like on the ground. Yeah, it's horrifying. Right. This sparks indignation in action, and it's kind of it basically creates the Albany movement. So the Albany movement, just like the Montgomery Improvement Association, it's formed by community leaders. SNCC, the young youth playing basketball, they're there. The NAACP, black preachers, the minister. Alliance, the Federated Women's Club. And so this is what I find interesting. And it, tell me if you find this interesting, Gabe. They have this goal where they say they agree they want to end segregation. They're forming to make the world a better place, end the segregation and violence. But they say... Um, there's tension in this group, by the way. So it's kind of... Some people want to be more action, demonstrate, some less. But they write, they have this little manifesto that says, it's been our, it's been our, um, our vicarious experience that when positive actions and matters of this kind have become necessary in order to implement the achievement of these constitutionally guaranteed rights, it has been detrimental to the best interest of the communities involved, economically, socially, and morally. In view of... In view of the threat of such detriment, it is our hope that such positive actions will not be necessary in the city of Albany. Basically saying they have this like cautious declaration. They don't want actions. They don't want protests. So when I read this, I was saying like, I wrote in my book, no protests. Like they want to, they want change. They're forming this organization. They're going to advocate, but we don't want to really do anything. <laughs> like, what did you make of that? Well, I, I can uh, hear down the ages Frederick Douglass saying, saying those who want change without struggle want the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the waves without the crash of the waters or whatever the, the line is. Um, I think uh, they're not going to get what they want. Well, no, but you can imagine this is the kind of discourse you have to pull together these different elements and 
it may be necessary work to say we want change. We hope we don't have to do this. Um, and the, the other thing that's going on in that quote I like a lot uh, that makes me shiver a little bit is the uh, how much work the word um, positive actions yeah. uh, is, is doing. Action as a euphemism for everything that it takes to uh, bring about change and create um, creative tension. That's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's gro- that th- Those are some phrases that are groaning under a lot of weight. Yeah, that's not something you see in Montgomery. They didn't put right out of the way, we're going to do it this way or not do this way. Again, Montgomery was before kind of a lot of stuff, so it's hard to compare, I guess. But So the leader's um, William G. Anderson. He is a likable, like, diplomatic type of guy, handsome, uh, well-spoken, unscarred, as, as uh, um, Branch writes. Uh, by the way, Mayor Kelly and Pritchard... Pritchard? Pritchard? And they, they get a copy of this, like, little manifesto, so they're aware. So the jailings begin. November 22nd, five days after the Alab, um, Albany movement uh, is formed, um, there's a challenge to segregation at the bus station, and Pritchard, Pritchard takes these people to jail. Later that day, college kids are getting off and ready to go back home for Thanksgiving, and a couple people go down, and more students are jailed. They're out on bond, and the community is rightfully upset that mostly five young students are arrested they're bonded there's a mass meeting at mount zion baptist church that um dr anderson uh monitor or what do you call it he, he heads the meeting and branch writes that this is an elite baptist church it's a little outside the norm it's kind of surprising that this is like the black aristocracy that's having this but that's like a good sign because it's showing that the community is united they start, singing, they start singing freedom songs, even calling out Pritchard, saying, ain't going to let uh, Chief Pritchard turn me around. Uh, Anderson brings up the five students uh, and lets them speak. One of them is Bertha Gober, one of the arrested students. And she says, I felt it was necessary to show the people that human dignity must be obtained even if through suffering or maltreatment. I'd do it again any time after spending those two nights in jail for a worthy cause. I have gained a feeling of decency and self-respect, a feeling of cleanliness that even the dirtiest walls of Albany's jails nor actions of my institution cannot take away from me. This is a really exciting part of the book, and, and Branch... Reduces the crowd to tears, by the way. Right. Br- Branch picks up on a couple... Uh, radical, even subversive things that are going on in the meeting. One is the powerful testimony of these individuals, Mm -hmm. but the other uh, is the singing itself. Because Mm -hmm. it takes the focus of a meeting like that away from the pastor, the literally the preacher who... They start singing, we shall overcome. Right. That it's, it's a collective activity. It's one in which you can insert uh, ideas like going to let Pritchett turn me around, right? And it binds people together in this really decisive way. It, it becomes, um, and it, it, it's a cappella. You know, you, mm-hmm. even the um, the organist is is out of the picture yeah. here. So some of these structures and authorities of the church are giving way to a, a popular movement. And I got the sense that this was not like the Brick-A-Day church or the Dexter church, where there was a history of discussing local... Uh, grievances against black folks that this was a little more restrained conservative church like that's why he 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 says like this was surprising that this happened at this Mount Zion Baptist Church uh, Dr. Anderson ends up singing a solo there um, all right so let's go forward Sherrod goes to Albany State Campus to try to gin up some support he's just arrested I mean I don't even understand he's arrested he's uh, out on bond um so let's talk about this fragile alliance that we hinted at earlier. So Sherrod, Regan, Reagan? Am I saying his name right? Reagan? And the SNCC, those, those are the SNCC dudes. Uh, they saw this alliance as fragile, and they're worried because they have enough insight and are aware that they're seen as, like, provocateurs, that they're outsiders. Um, but they are concerned that the movement needs to keep going and they have this declaration that like we're not going to protest so they had an idea which i think is great of uh hey let's invite the freedom ride guys down let's test it that way let's get james foreman he's a he's like the general secretary of snick let's bring him down he's like a good publicist he had experience if you remember him he's like uh 
he had experience in the National Student Association, mostly white group. Um, so he assembles, he's into this. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go down. He assembles a Motley crew, a bunch of Freedom Riders, Tom Hayden, kind of historical figure. He's part of it. But anyways, uh, Pritchard is savvy to this. He's aware of this. He finds out that this is going to be happening. So the bus comes in. The station is basically vacant. There's a squadron of police cars there. Uh, Pritchard's plan was to allow a couple members of the Albany movement to meet at this train station. Um, but the Freedom Riders were quickly ushered out the door using one of the marked whites only and were welcomed by their fellow civil rights activists. The sheriff was so enraged by this sight, he ordered their arrest on the spot. Eleven folks were put in a paddy wagon, booked on charges of disorderly conduct. Conduct, um, And that's the key, disorderly conduct. That's right. That's what they he keeps charging them on. Um, so they're not violating segregation. They're, they're just not obeying the police. So you can see this is an uphill climb. Like they're, they're having problems right away. This is a tough movement. So the movement is energized by this though. Uh, negotiations with the city aren't going well. The next day they march downtown to support the defendants. And remember what I find uh, kind of funny is the SNCC, uh, comrades, they have this idea of filling up the jails. They want to fill up the jails. And so does Pritchard. <laughs> so they're both a happy pair in a way. Um, so the following Monday, the Albany movement leaders went to pray outside the jail and found themselves arrested. The next day, uh, uh, a large group of students led by Sherrard marched downtown. They're herded into an alley and arrested. This is now getting national attention. The New York Times has an article on page 51 I mentioned that because it's like the paper was bigger back then, so it's buried in there, but it is making national news. And the, the, the headline is Albany, Georgia Jail, 200, Albany, Georgia Jail's 267 youth. Pritchard is steadfast in this idea. He's making deals with neighboring counties to make room for more prisoners. He's saying, we're going to have more of this. Can I uh, have you go to uh, this prison and all that stuff? And can we get space? And they're saying, yeah, sure. He's anticipating more demonstrations and more quick jailings. Um, is this getting us any fruitful negotiations with the city? Answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's moments, there's moments that Branch mentions that the mayor is indicating he's willing to negotiate and be flexible. And maybe we could hire some back police policemen. But then as soon as the, the message gets back to the city officials, they're hardline. They're like, no, no on... Um, no on all negotiations, essentially. And they're incensed at the idea of responding to demonstrations. It doesn't even seem to be so much of what they're demanding, but they hate the idea of caving into this pressure of like, we cannot, we're losing control of the city. If, if, if they do this and then we have to talk about it, um, this is bad. We're not, we're not. Yeah. Right. This, uh, th this is one of Pritchett's um, openly racist quotes. In, oh, yeah, I'll in, read it. In, in I'll read book. it here. Um we will jail demonstrators. We can't tolerate the NAACP or the SNCC or any other N-word organization to take over this town with mass demonstrations. Right. So here, here he's articulating um, this sort of grotesque, everyday um, racism, but also a kind of almost a philosophy of government, mm -hmm. which says that democracy the rule of law, sort of the normal state, can't tolerate any change of normal business, any expression mm -hmm. of what most people today would think of as elementary First Amendment public activity, mm -hmm. that that is so volatile. And it doesn't make any sense outside the context of race, right? And it it doesn't make any sense unless we've already had what happened in Montgomery We've already had struggle in other places, yeah. right? He knows this. And so he he is articulating, I think, a constrained idea of democracy in his view to save the state. Well, he says, uh, well, Kelly says, the city commission saw no area of possible agreement and the city could erupt into violence at any minute sparked by either angry blacks or Klansmen. Okay. The, 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 oh, this is a tried and true... Equating um, the two exactly, exactly it's that so... that 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 any uh, any threat um, 
The uh, violence is always done in this book so far. It's always done <laughs> by uh, the the white establishment, white folks, white ruling class, whatever you want to say. Right, and and, and but the but but um, state authority, the ruling political order, can say one of one of the threats of of you mobilizing is it's going to cause those provoke, people yeah, the, 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 the the sort of white uh, riffraff or clan mm-hmm. or the dangerous element to react and in order to prevent that we're going to prevent you protesting yeah um, alright let's take a little aside to MLK Jr. So again, context, late 1961. Um, oh, by the way, Barnard Lee, he's down there. He's MLK's assistant. He's mentioning this to some of the activists. And there's this idea of like people almost faint when they, oh, you know, MLK. Oh my God, he's so awesome. I don't know. I don't know why Branch mentions that other than to like put King on this pedestal that he really is this national figure. So around this time, MLK makes a speech at the AFL-CIO. This is really cool. It's, what's the AFL-CIO, everybody? Does anyone know? Anyone listening to the show, if you don't know what it is, my God. Okay, it's a large labor federation, folks. So he compares the civil rights movement and the sit-ins to the 1930s labor movement and the sit-down strikes. Uh, uh, and then whatever, Trademark Branch does his thing where he says, and by the way, two helicopters land in South Vietnam. And I'm thinking... Branch, who cares about the military involved in Yemen? I mean, Vietnam has anything to do with American life or politics. <laughs> well, right at this point in time, it doesn't. Obviously, the Vietnam War is going to become a huge thing in uh, episodes uh, 0031 or whatever. But <laughs> Just to just to uh, hover helicopter-like over the AFL-CIO yeah. for a minute. Yeah. Um, there are some interesting things happening with this speech that um, really quite concisely Branch draws out, right? One... Credit to our friend, um, my guy Stanley Levison, for mm-hmm. uh, drafting the speech, collaborating with uh, King to get a quote white speech, which is, but it covers a lot of ground, yes, right? Yeah. Because it's both going to move the the most um, uh, careful and traditionalist, and some would say bureaucratic. Well, it's cool that he's going movement. there yep. too. He's going to he's he's going to help them see the um, black freedom struggle in context of their own history and recent history. Also, he does this particular piece of work where he helps them see the Sullivan case. Um, yes. The threat yes, yes, yes. Uh, to the black organizations for publishing a piece in the New York Times, that advertising piece, that that itself is a threat to trade unions being able to pass out literature or take out ads. And so that creating a connection and immediate self-interest in the labor movement to support um, uh, the black ministers in defending that case. And... Cool. Um, and he makes sure to stand up for A. Philip Randolph, right? So he manages to do all of it in one speech so that the labor movement as a whole, both the minority of black trade unionists um, in the unions who were frankly beleaguered um, and being challenged by the leadership of the AFL-CIO and sort of pushed down, they feel supported and the white leaders of the mostly white membership are moving towards the movement. It's kind of brilliant. Finally... It means that the, especially the Democratic Party is going to notice mm-hmm. that the labor movement is finding more and more common ground. It helps to establish King. It really is an important piece of work. Yeah, and I, it's like, how did he end up getting there? Who invited him? That's kind of interesting. Um, a. Philip Randolph, m- most uh, important or greatest person in the uh, 20th century American history, in my opinion, maybe. Um, the Sullivan case, though, just to refresh our memory, that's the libel case against the New York Times that the Governor Sullivan has against um that's it and there, there's it's going to cost there's, like there's a group of pastors who are who are facing the loss of everything they own millions yeah exactly uh and the president it's because of the this the, this piece that they took out in the new york times um that it could bankrupt it basically right. could the, the jeopardy is this could bankrupt the civil rights movement right without going too deep into the union subject i i i think it's probably at this point in time a. Philip Randolph is fighting a lonely battle inside the AFL-CIO. He's been speaking out against unions, in particular the building trades unions, mm-hmm. for not 
bringing black workers into the union. And it's late right? 1961. And infamously, George Meany has been leaning in and attacking and trying to isolate and um, minimize the influence of A. Philip Randolph on the floor of the convention. Right? As a way of being like openly racist or like, we, let's not have this detention. Like, let's not, let's not talk about this. Right. Um, I mean, George Meany comes from the building trades. He's from the plumbers union. He's not interested in, in upsetting the, the building trades unions. But the AFL-CIO is a merger of the old CIO unions back into the AFL, right? And the, the leader of this group is really Walter Ruther, the head of the uh, United Auto Workers, at this time one of the biggest and most powerful, mm-hmm. and, and politically in some ways much more liberal than the building trades. And I think— More sympathetic to—he's right. f- more sympathetic with uh, Randolph's position in civil rights in general. That's right. So I, I think that that's the context— in which it makes sense to have um, Dr. King as a speaker at the event. That, okay, we need to show and engage somehow with what's happening with black people, and we need to do it in a way which is responsive to an audience, which is beyond just the building trades that are having this argument with Randolph. All right, let's uh, take a musical break, and then we'll get back to Albany. Let's fast forward back to Albany. Okay, this is my favorite point of contention in the chapter. To invite or not to invite? That is the question. You know what I'm talking about? Have you even read the book? Jesus. Okay, (laughs) shaking his head yes. Okay, so Albany movement, uh, they're discussing what to do next. There's now 300 people in jail. They have a boycott of downtown merchants in the bus line. But some of the leaders are acknowledging, we're in over our heads, guys. This is getting a bit much. Like, there's tension. What do we do next? C.B. King, he's the black aristocrat guy. He's saying, we need to get SCLC involved, NAACP involved. We got to get MLK down here. That would be useful. Have him come down. Give us some energy. And Snick, the youth, is saying, no, 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 no. But they have to say it in a way that doesn't make them look like jerks. So King, you know, he's like a messiah type figure for some folks. People, um, Snick is kind of thinking, we can't have him come down here because that's going to then reduce the feeling that people can do this for themselves. It's going to make people think less of themselves if they show up. We need to do this on our own. Um, but they're lacking funds, too. It's not just about the dynamic force of King and the SELC. They need, like, money. They need help organizing. They need fundraising help. Um, and so there's this debate amongst the leadership, the powerful folks in the book, you know, in the movement here saying, what do we do? Do we invite King? Do we not invite King? What should we do? And when I was reading this, my initial thought was, of course, invite him. Why would you not bring the most important civil rights, the most well-known? I mean, looking back in history, even at that time, he still he was on Time magazine, blah blah blah. It would it could it can only be a helping thing. Um, but part of me was also sympathetic to the youth because they want to do this on their own, and I can see the argument that like he's not going to stay here forever. What happens when he leaves? Like. Like, we can't rely on him. We need to build this for, you know, ourselves. What, what's your thoughts? What camp would you have fallen in? Bring King or don't bring King? Well, it's a good question. I mean, there, there are different people in the argument who have different perspectives on it, right? There's there's the SNCC cadre who, as we've been talking about in, in previous episodes, have really developed their own view of, of grassroots organizing, of empowering people more uh, sort of a, a pure democratic idea of mm-hmm. how change happens and uh, a very strong focus on the organizer as this person on the ground taking the risk alongside the people, almost a, a, a sort of saintly figure like Moses. And we know that SNCC doesn't see King like this at all. They see as someone who is removed and aloof, who is not personally personally taking the risks that they are. He's not on the ground with the people. He's upper class a little bit. And he's upper class and from this, uh, crucially from this 
sort of cast. Silk pajamas, of, nice nice suits. But for, what I'm saying is from this cast of pastors, these okay. unelected leaders, self-proclaimed leaders of the black community who the youth are rebelling against in some ways. And so it's very hard, I think, when you start building your perfect um, project, the dream of breaking through and creating this democratic kind of civil rights revolution. Wait a second, if we bring this person who represents all these things that we, we want to change, mm -hmm. what's going to happen to the project, right? And, of course, as the Albany story unfolds, they, they're they sort of torn back and forth between wanting to work with him but also put blame on him. And thank God King's who he is and not a different type of person because it is helpful. We'll find out. But so, meanwhile... Oh, and, and, and briefly, there are also other people who are not snake people, people from Albany... Like Page, who's a former railroad um, postal worker, yes, Marion Page, who, who who are just concerned about local community control yes. and are sort of suspicious of anybody. Although strangely, the, some of these snake activists came from outside of Albany, Georgia. Yeah. But at this point, they're sort of taking their side, saying, "Well, we don't need another outsider mm -hmm. coming in." And that's and that's who King is. Yeah, and and I think they think of themselves as they're in it for the long haul. They're down there. They're doing the work, and they're worried King's gonna whatever, parachute in, come and make a speech and leave, and who knows what's going to happen. Meanwhile, Mayor Carey, he's also trying to ask for help from the National Guard. Hey, we've got all these protests. Come on, please help us. So what are the demands of the Albany movement? These demands, oh my God, they're so egregious. They're not. Their main demands are they want integrated bus and train stations in 30 days. <laughs> and then it's like, this is like, they want to... The, the courts to accept property bonds for jail so people can't don't go bankrupt getting their, their loved ones out of jail. They want a biracial commission on segregation issues in the city, and then they would agree to a moratorium on demonstrations. I mean, pretty... Not a huge ask there. So King arrives a few days later. So they... King's coming. So King arrives a few days later. He... They have a big uh, rally at the church, mass meeting... King's speech encourages the community to keep fighting. He says, uh, we will go to jail without hating the white folks. He goes a little bit more on about that. Um, always has nonviolence and kind of this message of love, despite the what's going on, and kind of saying, we're going to demonstrate to them through our actions why this is important. Like, we'll teach them through our arrests. King then agreed to stay in town for a short time, hoping his presence would uh, force a settlement from the white leaders. However, concerns over King's safety made it necessary to hide his whereabouts. Um, a telegram sent to the mayor resulted in the white leaders breaking off negotiations. A march was quickly planned that King would lead. When the march reached the white section of town, the marchers were again herded into an alley where they were arrested, including King, who was placed under a special protection. Um, King was placed in a cell with William Anderson. He's the president of the Albany movement who um, was unstable before the arrest and uh, quickly became deeply disturbed in the jail cell. Anderson starts to like um, slip and mumble. He says, King, you are Jesus. King's trying to calm Anderson down, but uh, it's, it's really disturbing. It's sad. Anderson keeps jumping to make these pro proclamations of seeing these visions in the jail. And King's own sense of, like, sympathy and kindness towards Anderson really throws a wrench into this because he's like, oh, my God, this guy's losing it. He actually ends up calling or he, he reaches out to, to Walker. It's like, hey, Wyatt, you've got to get us out of here. Andy is not going to make it. Interestingly, if you watch the um, Eyes on the Prize documentary, Anderson's in there. There's no mention of this. And um, even in another book, uh, the bearing the cross this isn't mentioned but it's a very important component of this so then you have this just on a yeah we're going to go into it go yeah, well just on a human level i think um the impact of being imprisoned or jailed having your freedom taken away being constantly afraid of, of violence mm -hmm. ha having sort of filthy difficult conditions it's just worth lingering on what kind of pressure that puts on a person it's a kind of violence in and of itself oh for sure and you could see why king 
who is obviously a, a, a strategist and a philosopher and politician in some ways. Has been arrested before. Right. But, but now he's sort of confronted with this person who is suffering and losing control. Like that proximity to someone in that condition becomes yet another factor, which, by the way, even, even in the documentary you're talking about, but certainly at the time, would have been invisible to all the other stakeholders in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it's like, what is King to do? Like, is he to save this man to try to figure out and, and fight to get out? Or is that going to jeopardize the movement? Or is it to save the movement by sacrificing this guy's mental health and just really getting worse? So, because he originally wanted to not take bail in order to protest his arrest. But his... Which he said out loud and publicly. I'm, prepare, I'm prepared to go to prison. I'm prepared to do the time, right? Which creates... Um, a certain expectation of what's going to happen next in the movement. Yep. But uh, Anderson's growing instability just became like made him too concerned. And he insisted to Walker, like, we got to we got to do something. We got to get Walker out of here. He's not going to make it. Um, and the SCLC is like really involved. Walker's really involved. And he remember, Walker has this like abrasive kind of condescending personality, which really plays into what Snick, what Snick doesn't like about, I guess, King and SCLC. So then something interesting happens. Um, I don't know if you remember this Ella Baker press press release. Well, she didn't say it, but it, it helps it helps the situation. So Snick has a press conference telling the press that they have never been united with the SCLC. And this is a, a statement mostly drafted by Ella Baker. I don't know if Sherrod reads it or whoever, but... And I think the idea that they put out here is that this is a local fight, organized run, and led by the local leaders and the youth. But what the message puts out there is that... And actually, they say something like, there's been an unfortunate misrepresentation of the facts. Mr. Walker is not assuming leadership in Albany. And we, and then they say, we have never been united. So he's re- they're, they're throwing some... Slinging some arrows at Walker you know, being rude about it. But while this enrages Walker, uh, it actually comes at a great time because now he has a way to save face and get King out of there. And that's basically what happens. So upon learning of this turn of events and without knowledge of Anderson's predicament, protesters, you know, they feel betrayed and let down by King political figures in Georgia put, um, are putting pressure on local officials to drop the charges against King while Walker sends a telegram to the president asked to that the charges be dropped. And at the trial, the judge offered a deal that would allow King and the other protesters to go without bond, but refused to drop the bond against the freedom riders who were considered professional agitators. King says at a press conference, uh, you know, kind of beaten down, I guess, you know, he kind of says like, you know, I would not want to stand in the way of meaningful negotiations. This is sort of like the steps they've taken to continue on negotiations. Uh, meanwhile, right after this, like, um, there's just like a victory of the the white ruling class of like, yeah, we're not negotiating. They didn't, we're not agreeing to anything. There's some sense that Branch writes that, oh, we're going to, Kelly's like in an agreement on things, but no, the, the, um, the, the city commission is not doing anything different. Um, and then Branch writes how the press is upset and starts to write stories against King because they're childish. <laughs> they're such childish kids. I hate them. <laughs> I hate the press. I hate the media. So they're like, we wanted to come down here and be down here for several weeks writing a story about this civil rights movement. And now he just left. Wah. Ugh, annoying. So then that like kind of, you know, Keller's they're uh, they're writing about him. Um, so in the press and among civil rights leaders, this event was seen as a failure on King's behalf. Leaders of, of SNCC told King straight out that they felt that he had let them down and destroyed what they had worked so hard to accomplish, causing a rift between SNCC and the SCLC. And, you know, I really like there's this quote from King. It seems to just roll off his back. He He's. He's like, you know, he takes the long haul or the long approach or whatever. NAACP leader Roy Wilkins says, Snick, they don't take order. I almost thought this when I read this, I thought this was Wyatt Walker. Could have been either of them. They don't take orders from anybody. They don't consult anybody. They operate in a kind of vacuum parade, protest, sit, protest, sit in. When the headlines are gone, the issues still have to be settled in court. 
And I was like, Walker said that? No, Roy Wilkins did. And then what does King say to that? Little conflicts are inevitable. It's a mistake to throw the students out of the movement. Little conflicts are inevitable. It's a mistake to throw the students out of the movement. This is so great because they threw all these arrows at King, the snick, and he's like, no, 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 no. They're, they're right to be full of piss and vinegar, basically, and uh, I'm not going to blame them. Love it. I love this quote from him and his whole general attitude, Gabe. He's, he's the most impressive person here in a lot of ways, right? I mean, uh, Wilkins there is, is deploring the traditional NAACP position, right? It always comes down to the lawsuit. These people are undisciplined. Let's ha- handle things as we always have, right? And meanwhile, the students, who, who, by the way, have been doing remarkable things, but also do not have the kind of organizational sophistication of either the NAACP, NAACP, or SCLC, King's Organization, right? They're using this um, failure as a way to deepen their critique of of King and every, everything he's doing. And yet in the midst of this, King is finding ways to see the movement as a whole. And oh my God. I think it's profoundly it's, important. It's uh, It almost gives me chills and uh, makes me happy to be part of humanity and stuff because, okay, what happened to Martin Luther King in his life so far? His house was firebombed. He was stabbed. He's getting death threats. He's been jailed numerous times. Um, an organization that he's trying to build into a civil rights organization turns its back on him and treats him like crap. Some of the leaders around him are saying these students are jerks. You should. Uh... So all the forces are kind of saying like, yeah, you're right. And he is still saying, no, we the students are good. You know, I mean, just he he could easily you could see how any other person would have like maybe been a little bit uh, sassy or whatever you want to say. And he does not. So freaking awesome. Um. So that kind of, I don't want to say that wraps up Albany. It wraps it up in this chapter. Um, Albany, the Albany struggle still continues, um, but it doesn't really continue in this chapter. Uh, but there are some tidbits now that we get into that, uh, that Branch brings up. Um, first off, just a little aside, Levinson writes a letter to the New York Times criticizing the media's take on King and saying like, He's damned if he do, damned if he doesn't. Like, you don't want him to be protesting. Then when he leaves early, you're upset about it. A letter which doesn't get published. Oh, did I miss that? No, no. Well, it is they ignore him. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. I think it was yeah. Time Magazine. Yeah. Um, James Bevel and Diane Nash get married. <laughs> We're in Mississippi. Uh, Farmer organized a freedom ride. James Farmer. By the way, James Farmer in the Eyes on the Prize documentary comes across is very cool and lovable and has a cool voice and... Uh, just seems like a fun guy. I'd like to hang out with him. Um, he organized a freedom ride in Macomb that ended in a ride at the bus station, resulting in a judge banning further freedom rides in Macomb. Surprise, surprise. Moses uh, was released from jail and found that SNCC was no longer welcome in Macomb. Um, Moses moved on to Jackson. And and then just to, we sort of mentioned this, but King never told anybody about Anderson's mental state during this entire incarceration. Um. So that's basically what... Which which I think is also really wonderful in a way. This is where I think Branch is kind of pointing out... um, Because you can imagine the stigma in the 1960s about mental health. King's character, like what a... Right, exactly. You know, it forced King to like rethink his tactics rather than kind of throw him under the bus or whatever. It just showed what a high moral standard that King had. Yeah. so I was thinking about, can we talk about Montgomery now? Are we allowed to? Well, before you, okay, go ahead. I wanted to just add a footnote to this uh, generational conflict between SNCC and, and SCLC and go back to something you said about Tom Hayden as a political figure mm-hmm. who gets brought down by SNCC. I mean, in, in 1962, Tom Hayden would not have been an important figure or even a known figure mm-hmm. to a lot of people, right? Um the Students for a Democratic Society is a very young organization at this point, right? And I think they are, as, as a group of sort of what, what comes to be called new left, um, de- democratic, reforming um, white radicals, they're very much following in the footsteps of the Black Freedom Movement. Mm-hmm. But the way that SNCC which has invited Hayden to come down. And at one point he's beaten up by racists. 
Um, then he's going back up to the north to give speeches, to organize support among students for the, the black freedom struggle. I think it's really clear that he's going to see SNCC as, as a model in mm-hmm. particular, because the way that SNCC relates to the SCLC in many ways um, previews the way that the Students for a Democratic yeah. Society start relating to the more established democratic left and the labor movement. Yeah, I we I didn't kind of delve into that, and I was trying to think when was the Port Huron statement? Because uh, I wasn't that before this. Mm. Well, right, we're we're in the early days of SDS. But, uh, oh, nineteen sixty-two. So it doesn't happen yet. Right, okay. but I I think the, I think the organization um, is 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 started a little before this. I think it's nineteen sixty. He he's a very early leader, mm-hmm. um, but if you think about it. Nobody is th- to 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 Branch's point. Nobody is thinking about the Vietnam War yet, oh, right, and, and, right. and so forth. So the issue of the day, and the issue that's I'm just saying is profoundly formative for white uh, radicals Act- like activist, Hayden yeah. is is what SNCC is doing, and then that organization in many ways becomes a model. All right, let's let's take another quick break, and then um, let's just do a little quick comparison of Montgomery and Al- and Albany. Hold on one moment. Okay, so the whole time I was reading this chapter... I was thinking about Montgomery and I was thinking about how that succeeded and why this doesn't. And I think it's somewhat unfair given the time, but you know, there's a history now. So obviously Pritchard was able to study and learn from some of the mistakes, but there are some magical things I think that Montgomery had going for it or just luck. And so one was there was like this well-established group of people that were looking for opportunities to challenge segregation. And there, you know, you had Edie Nixon, Rosa Parks, Joanne Robinson, Fred Gray, and I can't remember the, uh, the two white progressive liberal radicals, the, um, John, uh, he was a, he was a new dealer guy and his wife, remember them, the lawyer. In addition, you had Ralph Abernathy, young, inclined to engage in civil rights, you know, black freedom struggle, and obviously Martin Luther King, to throw themselves in the fight. And that's before even Bayard Rustin and NAACP are kind of participating in a heavy extent. And then also you have the police that are not savvy. But probably one of the more important things is you actually have this like lingering court case strategy that they're kind of waiting on where they get this victory from the Supreme Court. There is no lingering court case. That's what I was going to say. I think that what, Mon- in, in retrospect, what, what Montgomery had going for it was the the legal tool and also the, the axis of the struggle involved the black people of the town withdrawing their uh, patronage mm-hmm. of the public bus system. It's in some ways like a strike, right? Yes, it yeah. places a hardship on the bus riders who now have to walk um, and exposes them to attack and so forth. But it also puts the the public um, bus system in the threat of its um, solvency. Because you had the white bus system saying, like, can we just be done with this so we can continue to make money? Right. right. So in, in that sense, it's a little bit like... A, a strike at a factory or a mine mm-hmm. or a hospital or something, right? It's obviously very hard on the workers, but it's creating an economic problem for the enterprise as well. Whereas it feels like what's happening in Albany and in other places too, but it, it depends. It's more like, um, uh, they're trying to fight like a cultural norm. Well, well, what I was going to say is, is it's, it's, it's like they're trying to storm the castle that they have to have momentum on their side, um, and yet when they're, the, the the mass arrest strategy places this enormous burden on the people getting arrested, and Pritchett 
one of the things he does that's clever that other people have done as well mm-hmm. in, in law enforcement in, in our story so far is that he's diffusing the um, the the jailing of people into other counties and so forth. And so the local movement and SNCC are under enormous pressure. The families of the people who are in, in jail are struggling. Um, and there's not a it's not creating an economic crisis or a legal crisis for Albany. There's not a legal crisis. There's not an economic crisis. Other, but they do mention there's some boycotting of like stores downtown, but that doesn't seem to be an impact. Now it's only a couple months, so I, you know, this struggle does kind of continue to go on. The other thing I was thinking is the- at, at least as Branch writes about this, though, that's not the fulcrum of this fight. Though it seems like the fulcrum of the right. fight is these escalating demonstrations and your ability to escalate them. And if if that is um, what what it depends on like there's a moment when king is going to come for his first march and there are only a few hundred people who come out to him. join him yeah. they get arrested but they're 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 not able to the, the only escalation is actually king's personage in a way mm-hmm. and then because of this situation which we've just described he ends up not staying in jail and that doesn't be you know it, it, it diffuses things yes these these arrests while snick make makes it they want it maybe to be a like a tool for them ends up being a hindrance really. And if you think about Montgomery, the one time they had that mass arrest, they turned that into a positive by making it kind of like a theatrical show where they all went down and got arrested one by one. And it was like fun and all that. Um, So I also thought that this isn't maybe correct, but it's important to maybe point out that there was like the tension between the older professional black leadership and the youth, it didn't seem like that was a thing in Montgomery. There seemed to be more community cohesion, at least how Branch, Branch writes it. I mean, SNCC didn't exist, obviously. Um, but I don't think that is the reason why. I mean, that's not the reason why there wasn't a success in integrating the the bus stations. You know, this, the conditions were obviously different. Um, so what did we learn, though, from this is that... Uh, what I was thinking is, even though this doesn't succeed, I think there's a quote from Sherrod that says, once we started protesting, um, segregation was doomed because people weren't going to stop. And there is a long haul where eventually, obviously, this this gets, this ends up, this does end. Um, but it really was two students, though. So I, I don't, even though this is like a failure, this started because two dudes went down there and kind of like, I mean, I don't know, maybe the Albany movement wouldn't have occurred in the same way because of that like trial of uh, Wayne or whatever. Um, but it really was because of these two students and their persistence to like kind of push and push is why this thing started. And, and it's going to continue. And I think it's going to pop up right. in a couple chapters because there is more stuff in 1962 with the Albany movement. And I think King may end up going down there again. Um, but it is kind of a bummer. <laughs> I mean, but, but look, Paul. I mean, I, I think I'm. I don't think I'm, you're going to disagree with what I'm about to say. But I, I've been thinking about this in a different context to prepare for a, a union meeting next week. But the strategy and the analysis of strategy that we're doing, that leaders in the movement were doing in the '60s, which hopefully trade unionists do, you know, in my context today, that's very important. But you can never engage in these kind of struggles with any kind of mathematical formula that gives you a guarantee of right. victory. You have to be prepared to take risk. And if you don't struggle, you know, you'll lose. Yeah. So let's, let's try to figure it out. I mean, let's just do the exact same thing they did here and it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, uh, sometimes there's, you know, that it's useful. We learn a little bit, but anyways, any other thoughts on, uh, this chapter? It was a, a little bumming, a little depressing, but you know, on a second read, I actually feel, uh, a little better about it. A little more inspired by yeah, King. I, there, there are many people who are admirable, not just King, but but students and 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 people who thought of themselves as, as moderate or conservative who took great risks here. Uh, and it's it's sobering to see again the intelligence and resiliency of, of white supremacy in, in power. 
we have to be thoughtful white supremacy about taking is on these power uh, learning structures. and they are also learning they're also changing and, and learning how to you know continue to stay in power so all right thanks everybody for listening and uh in the next chapter we are going to be it's chapter 15 called hoover's triangle and king's machine um we're going to be doing some fbi talk and more um internal king stuff and whatnot i don't know what that means so all right thanks for listening bye